On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Jared Boyd, who is a performance physical therapist with the Memphis Grizzlies. Our main topics on this podcast were just some things that Dr. Boyd has put into different frameworks and ways that other people can apply them and, ex- and explaining them in ways that, that make really good sense. Like I said, a lot of times I'll say on this podcast, people know people can reason A to B, but understanding how Dr. Boyd reasons through all of this and gets there uh, is, is a way that other people can apply these. So we talked about his, his pyramid from principles to methods. So starting off with a lot of people have methods first as, as they, what they go to, where he brings it back two steps and talks about how he reasons going through that. We then talk about his reconditioning framework and how he identifies what you need to work on and, and, and what the athlete needs, and then how to combine these two with the reconditioning framework as well as his principles to methods pyramid. Finally, we focus in on two smaller things, um, which are going to be how he reasons through graded exposure as well of his pendulum of, of mechanics and how he chooses which movements to put into these. So it's a really good view of, of how he looks at things broadly and then focuses on a couple important key aspects. So great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please have a listen and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Noic Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Dr. Jared Boyd, who is a performance physical therapist for the Memphis Grizzlies. So thank you very much for having, um, for taking the time to be on, Jared. Uh, if you just want to introduce yourself, give a little background about um, your, your past education, kind of your past journey and where you're at now and what you do, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure, Patrick. Thank you for uh, for having me on, man. I'm excited to dive into some some good stuff here. Um, so, as you said, I'm a physical therapist currently in the NBA with the uh, Memphis Grizzlies. I've uh, been here going on two and a half years, I want to say. Time kind of gets crazy, especially as of late with COVID and the, and the bubble and everything. Uh, but I want to say, yeah, maybe two and a half years uh, prior to this, I was in. Uh, an outpatient sports oriented physical therapy clinic. So, you know, seeing a lot of weekend warriors, high school athletes, uh, some collegiate level athletes as well. Uh, people that just really want to be physically active and get back to uh, moving and, and movement and rectify their, their ailments. Um, and prior to, to physical therapy school, uh, I majored in undergrad in exercise science. So I think that's where, you know, for me, I kind of started to gravitate towards this this field of physical therapy where it was this domain where you could kind of blend a lot of different disciplines from uh, psychology to physiology uh, to, to, to biology. Um, so it was something that kind of sparked my interest and felt like it was it was a great pursuit. Uh, so again, like I said, currently with the with the Grizzlies man on off season training right now, so a little bit more free time available. Perfect. Well, thanks again for being on. I guess, like I said, I, as I spoke to you before the show, one thing I really liked that you do is is how you reason through things and kind of create frameworks or put things on a, some sort of diagram that makes sense to people for to get from point A to point B. So 
I guess what, uh, one thing that I've heard you talk about before on a, on a podcast and, and your post is your um, principles over methods pyramid and, and the reasoning through why you go through that. Uh, if you just maybe want to first explain how you kind of came up with that or what, what are your thoughts on why you, we do that, and then we can go through the general progression from what each kind of um, level of the pyramid means. Yeah, for sure. So, man, for me, principles are incredibly important and, and, and they really just serve as these guardrails, if you will, in trying to navigate the conundrum that we face or the complexity that we're exposed to and dealing with the human organism. And so, you know, there's so much information out there uh, that's disseminated upon us and it can be challenging and an obstacle to discern, you know, well, what should I have an allegiance towards? What is actually credible? Uh, and how do I assimilate all of this into something that is that's tangible or practical. And that's especially true for me when I initially came out of school of like these different uh, schools of thought and, and these different tribes, if you will, in regards to the methods that, again, were, were available. So for me, trying to establish these principles allowed me to maybe refine and refocus a lens so that I can determine out of all these different uh, systems that are available, perhaps what I could do is determine what are the non-negotiables, what are the, the, the commonalities, if you will, amongst all of these, and then I can kind of boil that down to being the, uh, the, the principles, things that are ubiquitous amongst all of these different systems. And so principles, you know, by, nef by definition are these fundamental truths, uh, so to speak, that remain relatively consistent or constant uh, across a lot of different uh, domains or entities. And so in the, the realm of physical preparation or sports performance or physical therapy, they should be relatively, at least in, in my perspective, broad or general uh, concepts that capture a lot of, uh, of, of information. And then from there, you know, as you mentioned, at the, at, this is a pyramid. So at the bottom, we, we have these principles and then as we start to move up, we might get a little bit more specific uh, and concrete and, and some of the minutia. So, you know, we have the principles and we get up to what I call uh, these heuristics, right? These mental models, if you will, uh, or these shortcuts, these rules of thumb. Um, and then from there, we get lastly into the actual methods, meaning what are the tactics? How are we going to employ or administer a certain type of intervention or strategy in order to rectify or remedy whatever constraint uh, the athlete presents with? Yeah, so it's all sort of like working backwards, whereas most people, a lot of people think methods is how they get there, where you start with the methods and then break it down even further into things that um, you – the, the reasoning through why you're doing everything. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're, you're reverse engineering the process. Uh, and then that allows you not to have this firm allegiance or attachment to only one system, because that's where we get ourselves into trouble because we become more myopic or, or nearsighted where it might be hard for us to take the appropriate detour uh, if we only see the world through this one particular method or system or, or, or strategy of intervention. So by having these principles, we can now more appropriately update our GPS system, our navigation system to create the more appropriate 
or relevant intervention for the individual, as long as we understand the backdrop that that sits against, which is going to be those those principles that encompass every decision that we should uh, make. Perfect. And now do you have principles that are relatively consistent across multiple injuries and, and then you kind of build up from there? And then, yeah, do you mind kind of going through that of how, what your main principles are? And then even if you want to throw a general example in there, ankle sprain and whatever injury, and then apply, you apply it throughout, would be kind of, kind of cool to see. Yeah, for sure. So for me, uh, you know, the principles that I typically subscribe to are going to be uh, and I'll say them and then I'll kind of go back and, and give maybe an appropriate definition and example. But uh, one is going to be Occam's razor. Uh, we're also going to have cultivating optimism, uh, adaptive relevance, systems, uh, variability, uh, stress inoculation. Uh, those are going to be the, the biggest principles that I typically use to help build this this framework. And so if we look at them uh, individually, Occam's razor essentially is is a theory or or law that states the simplest answer often suffices. Uh, and the reason that I like this principle is, it is it's not to say that the simplest answer is inherently always correct, but the more uh, the more variables and factors we put into an equation or a hypothesis, we're starting to lower the probability of that being uh, the appropriate. Uh, the, the, the appropriate uh, category for placing someone in or the appropriate intervention that we're selecting. So, for example, uh, we could have someone that comes into the clinic and they have uh, discomfort at the Achilles tendon region. And so they explain to us that, you, you know, I've, I've been running around three miles five times a week. Uh, this week I went up to five miles, uh, five times a week. And so we can say, well, what do you think the impetus for this individual's uh, symptomology is around the tendon? Well, we can go one of two ways. Uh, if we're abiding by Occam's razor, we would say, well, it probably is a capacity exceeding uh, injury where that particular tissue being the uh, Achilles tendon exceeded its stress and strain tolerance or capacity, meaning it wasn't able to handle the accumulation of volume that it was exposed to. On the other hand, if we discounted and didn't subscribe to Occam's razor, it would be easier for us to have a justification for a lot of other variables that might not have a lot of credence, meaning, oh, well, I think the impetus for you sustaining, you know, this Achilles tendinopathy symptomology is uh, you have flat feet, uh, you, you uh, also have a weak glute med that uh, accentuated the duration of pronation and then that placed more micro tears in the Achilles tendon. And so what we have to do now is rectify your glute meat strength and your internal rotation and maybe give you an orthotic because you have flat feet. So you can see it's like the, the more factors that we add in, then we start to muddy the waters and we potentially uh, will administer these types of interventions and these tactics that might not have that much credibility to them in regard to what the literature uh, references and supports. And it's not to say that those other factors never matter and they are important, but maybe they aren't the, the low-hanging fruit. There's opportunity cost for, for everything. Um, 
so that would be one, maybe one example of, of Occam's razor. Uh, when we look at something like adaptive relevance, that is essentially the same as the said principle. So specific adaptations to impose demand. So uh, a lot of times, you know, this concept or this principle gets confused with kinematics in regard to how something specifically looks. So people will often say, okay, well, adaptive relevance or the said principle means that the, the movement has to look like the exact movement that the terminal task dictates or requires. Or if they got injured in a particular manner, then I have to make sure I put them in that discrete uh, position to emulate that. And what, what, what happens, unfortunately, is that if we subscribe to adaptive relevance meaning only and signifying only kinematics, we might not actually employ the necessary stress or stimulus to the, the tissue that needs to actually improve its stress and strain tolerance. Um, because we're, we're adding in too many variables and too much maybe noise. Uh, so an example of this would be, uh, let's, say, let's say ACL reconstruction, for example. So there are maybe some camps that will demonize uh, leg extensions. Well, a leg extension can be a, a very viable option. It has a lot of adaptive relevance after ACL reconstruction because of the fact that we can constrain the activity and ensure when it's appropriate uh, that we can, we can place an appreciable amount of load within the quadriceps to restore its functional capacity uh, to, to increase maximum muscle strength or increase hypertrophy. So if we only looked at the kinematic side, we would say, no, we have to do something where they're in quote unquote close chain, right? Where their feet are on the ground and they're doing a squat. But what if they they are exceeding the bandwidth of what we think is acceptable or, or we can't even catch it with our eye that they're deviating from the uh, reconstructed limb? Well, that means that perhaps a reconstructed limb is not getting the kinetics that we want or that it needs, meaning it's offloading it's load averse. And so now we don't actually restore the quad because they're using some kind of accommodative strategy, meaning the hips are being maybe a little bit more involved. So uh, that's maybe an example of adaptive relevance where we could still use something that doesn't look like the terminal task or the end goal, uh, but it's still relevant to what we're trying to adapt, which in that particular case was the quadriceps. Um, and then systems variability to me is, is about having uh, more more variability or a capacity or a plethora of options available where we're giving people maybe a larger bandwidth to work with so that they have uh, options. And, and so the analogy I use is this GPS system where if there's a detour or a roadblock or a traffic jam, then I want to make sure that this person has enough strategies or solutions available to still complete or answer the question that's being asked in regard to the movement or the task. Uh, because if they don't, and, and those systems don't have enough uh, variability present, then we could potentially find ourselves in a situation where we've overstressed or strained or overtaxed a system um, and depleted it of its, its necessary resources. Um, from there, uh, we, we look at cultivating optimism, which I think is, is relatively self-explanatory, but it's more so the psychological, psychosocial component uh, where we're making sure that we're providing people with these safe-to-fail uh, types of tasks, and we're giving them these glimpses of 
uh, of, of success and these small wins throughout the reconditioning process so that they start to gain this sense of, of self-efficacy and they gain this sense of optimism prior to return to uh, return to sport. And then we have um, the stress inoculation. And the stress inoculation is essentially saying, well, in order for the organism to adapt and evolve uh, and become and increase its, its capacity, meaning the amount that it can produce in whatever category we think they need to be able to imp- improve on or produce more of, uh, we have to inoculate them or dose them with the appropriate level of stress in order to improve that particular system's capability. So, you know, that's what stress inoculation is. And then the last one that I forgot to mention is uh, graded exposure, which is essentially titrating slowly this stress inoculation so not to overwhelm uh, the system. Because, you know, as we know, the it's like, oh, well, the poison is the antidote, but it's all about how we titrate it in slowly over time so that there's this, this, uh, this time scale available for the system to evolve and adapt slowly over time. So those are those are the, the principles and maybe a few examples in which they help me uh, navigate this complexity within the reconditioning world. You know, those are all great, and they make, like I said, um, I like how you, the examples of applying them made a really great sense as well. Uh, so for the next category, I guess, with, with heuristics, um, so all those would then apply into that. So how would you kind of reason through that next, the next step of it? Yeah, for sure. So the, again, like I said, the heuristics are going to be these, um, these rules of thumb, these, these mental repositories of credible information that comes from literature. It probably is going to be something that comes from prior experience as well, even though that can be somewhat biased, but it is what allows us to have this predictive processing in the future uh, and making decisions. So the heuristics are three distinct buckets that I typically will use to allocate uh, maybe a, a focus or a concerted effort. And so one of those heuristics would be tolerance. Another would be capacity. And then the, the later would be competency. And so with these heuristics, it doesn't mean that they are stable, meaning that the, the patient, the athlete can't maneuver through these different buckets, uh, nor does it mean that they can't simultaneously occur uh, because sometimes they certainly do, but it's up to us, I think, to discern whether or not capacity or competency or tolerance is going to be the first line of defense in trying to rectify uh, whatever the patient is is presenting with. So for example, uh, the delineation between tolerance and capacity and how I see it is, again, capacity by definition is the amount something can can actually produce, as opposed to tolerance being more so uh, subscribed to willingness. So it's more subjective, meaning someone could, could actually have a high capacity so they could produce something um, at the requisite and necessary outputs that they need to complete the terminal task or their desired and required activities, but they might not have the tolerance level to do that because for some reason they have exceeded their quote unquote envelope of function, which is a term uh, from from Scott Dye, uh, meaning the stress inoculation that they incurred was perhaps too much too soon for whatever reason where that tissue couldn't modulate the magnitude or the duration of that stress. Um, 
So now their tolerance level, meaning their willingness to endure a particular type of activity, starts to uh, it starts to lessen. So they likely have a subjective experience of pain or some kind of unpleasant sensation that, again, precludes them from demonstrating the capacity that they really do have. Now, the thing that, that could happen, though, is that if I have a decreased tolerance for a long enough time, and again, as I stated, it precludes me from... Uh, demonstrating or engaging in these activities that help to improve my capacity. Well, now my capacity starts to decrease because I'm, I'm removing a stress or a stimuli that helps me adapt or evolve. So it becomes kind of like this bi-directional relationship. Uh, so that's how I delineate tolerance as opposed to capacity. And capacity, you could surely have you know, high tolerance, but a low, a low capacity. That could be people that maybe have just started maybe a new training uh, cycle, a new periodization program, or, you know, even this, maybe like a, a couch to 5k, if you will, where they just don't have the requisite resources available to participate or partake in the arduous goal of getting to a, a, a 5k. So uh, we need to build them up slowly over time, but they, they have an okay tolerance. Um, you know, they don't have any unpleasant uh, subjective experiences in regard to, to pain, if you will. Now, when we look at competency, this is, is more so aligned with this concept of skill acquisition or task attainment, maybe more towards the kinematic side of the equation, as opposed to capacity would be more towards the kinetic side of the equation. So competency could be someone who uh, they, they just started, maybe, maybe they just started to learn a new Olympic lift. They're doing a snatch. And we could say, well, do they possess all the uh, requisite components, right? These basal level uh, aggregates that allow them to perform the task, meaning they have the necessary shoulder uh, flexion that they need to perform an overhead snatch. Um, and then lower body constituents are all available as well from a range of motion perspective. They've been training, right? They've done uh, integrated and isolated shoulder exercises. So we think that they have the capacity from a shoulder glenohumeral complex to handle a snatch or a position of being an overhead. Um, but as they mentioned subjectively, this is the first time that they have been exposed to such a lift. So perhaps they don't have the competency or the acquisition of that skill yet refined. And so maybe they need more from their skills coach uh, to, to maybe regress it appropriately to meet them where they are. And then slowly over time, using the principle of graded exposure, um, progress them to a point where now they can demonstrate the whole task of the snatch. So that would be more indicative of, oh, they likely have a competency problem. It might not inherently mean that they have a, a capacity issue, right? And so that's how I, I delineate those things. And again, this doesn't mean that, let's say, you know, this individual that uh, in the scenario came in and they they did for some reason happen to have what we thought a tissue strain uh, occur to the shoulder. Well, we could still perhaps weight competency as being a heavy factor as the impetus for the, the injury because it was new, 
But because it was new and they didn't have the appropriate solution or they exceeded the bandwidth, that placed more strain and stress on a particular structure. And so we would still probably need to shore up that that structure, improve its tolerance to load in a vertical direction. But understanding that at the end of the day, in order to maybe lessen the probability of this occurring again, we want to rectify the uh, the competency. Yeah. Okay. So kind of an interplay between the two and the last and the last thing you said. But obviously they're they're one of each own. Sometimes they overlap with with um, injuries that come in. And then, so after that, like I, with with all of that data, is then how you would choose the methods you use. Whereas a lot of people think an injury comes in, this is how I treat, so I'm just going to apply it. Whereas if you don't understand the two below levels, you're not going to know. I mean, you, you might not be choosing the right method for that person or that specific injury. Right. Yeah. And it's just like you alluded to earlier, Patrick, like, you know, people will typically go top down as opposed to bottom up with principles, heuristics, methods and methods usually sits at the bottom where we become so shackled to the tools that we're using. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I like to look at first and helping me maybe create a more efficacious intervention is to really talk with the patient or the athlete in regard to what are they willing to do? What's the, the, the effort, the energy that they're willing to put into uh, this type of, of, of ability to rectify and refine um, whatever constraint that we found in order to get back to their required or desired task? I think that's going to definitely have an influence on the methods that, that we use. Um, because some methods might require a longer duration, more effort. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're aligning with their um, their, their beliefs and, and their desires. So that's going to be the first line of defense in regard to how I'm choosing the method. Uh, and then the next thing for me would be this concept of uh, opportunity costs, where, you know, it's like, well, opportunity costs essentially means that if for for me going after a certain constraint or endeavor um, if i place all my stock in in that particular area or that domain i'm now lessening the opposite domain uh, or I'm, I'm not placing stock in the other uh in the in the other variables that might potentially be something that i could use some kind of rectification but they might not necessarily need all of my all of my attention, and I have to be I have to be aware uh, of that because there's going to be essentially this risk reward, if you will. That's that's all opportunity costs mean. So, you know, what is the reward that I'm seeking from this particular method or intervention, and what's the associated risk? And am I okay with that of gaining this method gaining me this access or this capacity, and leaving the other method off the table? Um, so that's that's another thing. And so an example of methods and making sure that while I can have different methods, I'm still going to be held to the principles would be something like a person who needs to improve their explosive muscle strength for whatever reason. So we can even, again, go back to the example of uh, ACL reconstruction as they progress through these uh, these phases, if you will, of reconditioning and they get more towards the end, 
where now we're thinking more locomotive activities with higher rates of force development. And again, we're looking at explosive muscle strength um, where we're trying to maybe have a higher impulse and higher intent uh, and rate coding, right? All these different principles that go into that where there's a lot of different solutions available. One could be uh, Olympic lifts. So I could take a certain percentage of their one rep max perhaps, and then I could do some kind of Olympic lift and still maybe employ the same principles, meaning intent. Uh, the weight isn't going to be incredibly heavy, right? Because now I'm going back to this uh, principle and the concept of force velocity curve. Um, but perhaps there's someone who they haven't learned how to, nor do they have the competency to perform Olympic lifting. So that's where, again, this conversation piece comes in in regard to are you willing or able to invest time in learning the Olympic lifts in order to improve your, uh, your, your elastic strength, if you will, or your, uh, your power output? Well, perhaps not. And again, what is the opportunity cost of that? If, if they say they're okay with doing that, and now I place all my effort and energy in trying to refine that. Well, the first, the, the first maybe few weeks are going to be just them getting more confident uh, and competent with the lift. And so they might not acquire the adaptation that we're trying to see, as opposed to something like maybe uh, plyometrics or elastic strength for a more appropriate word. We could probably say, well, this is something that's probably a little bit more safe to fail they feel that they have more competency in the opportunity cost is going to be a little less here and we can actually acquire the adaptations that we need in order to improve their uh their, their power output so you know those are maybe two examples where there's a lot of different solutions uh, and strategies available but we're still abiding by the same principles and all along like those those methods have their own principles if you will of if we're trying to improve explosive strength. But we also have the continued principles of the entire reconditioning process, which is, okay, we're gonna improve explosive strength, but we're still going to make sure we're abiding by inoculating them with enough stress. So, okay, well, I have to make sure that I provide enough percent of their one rep max uh, to make sure that I'm fitting in a certain zone of the force velocity curve. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm giving them this graded exposure concept. I'm not gonna overwhelm them with this elastic strength or plyometric, or if we happen to go the route of Olympic lifts, I'm not gonna overwhelm them with that because again, they just moved and traversed out of a, you know, out of a phase that didn't really have that emphasis on it. So I don't wanna overwhelm them with things where we're moving uh, at, at a faster velocity. So making sure that we're understanding we have these principles that are broad and then we also have principles that are contingent on the specific methods that we are aiming to use yeah okay so again that's applying from one level to the next and getting to the top and i think it makes really good sense to people of of reasoning and how they get to that specific method as you said instead of just choosing one i know you also put out the reconditioning framework so of of going through that needs analysis and having you have tactical, technical, um, physical, and psychological, how do, do those intertwine and how, how do you kind of relate those or going back to them? Cause I would say, I think both of them are really good, um, thought processes. And I, I guess, do you have different ways you think about them? Yeah, or, for sure. Yeah. 
So I think, like you said, they definitely are intertwined. And perhaps for me, the needs analysis comes into play a little bit more uh, when we're looking to plan the off-season training uh, for, you know, the, the physical preparation part of the season where we can really look back on the season uh, subjectively and objectively assimilate information to determine which domain the athlete needs a, a priority on, right? So what should we prioritize? And as you alluded to, we have these four categories of the technical, tactical, physical, and psychological. Well, often in our world, from a, a sports physical therapist perspective, we probably can more so manipulate and influence the uh, more of the, the technical as well as the physical domains. Technical is kind of what I describe as the the competency, the form, the position uh, capabilities, the competencies. Obviously, we also have technical on the court itself in my world or in the specific task of the sporting endeavor, but we can also probably shore up some of the pitfalls of an individual not being able to maybe, let's say, change direction as as well as we would want. That is a more challenging task to try to rectify kinematics, but um, we, we can certainly try to influence that. And then we have physical which I think most of us are, are aware where this is where we typically have the, the most influence. So these are going to be things like strength, power, speed, or biomotor uh, capacities. And then we have bioenergetic things that might be more locomotive, more cyclical, where we're trying to perform an activity for a longer duration of, of time. Um, so that's typically where we have a lot of our priorities. And then we can subjectively have a conversation with the athlete to determine, you know, last season, what did you perceive as being an area where you want to improve or an area where you felt that uh, you just weren't where you really want to be? Um, and so this is where, you know, you get into the conversations of, well, again, thinking specifically in regards to basketball, well, yeah, for some reason, I just don't feel like I can get off the ground as quick, or I don't feel like I can slow down and push out as quick as I want to. So that's when we start to investigate a little bit further uh, as, as maybe doing this reverse engineering process to determine what is the rate limiter for this athlete in regards to why they don't feel that they have the capacity or the competency or the tolerance to perform that particular need. And that's where we establish the need of, oh, they need deceleration capacity or they need uh, this, they, they, they need triple flexion competency, uh, meaning the ability to descend so that they can quickly get out of that position into more concentric oriented uh, activity. And we can, we can do this, again, by the different types of assessments, if you will, to determine not with 100% authority, but maybe with a little bit uh, of some better probabilistic um, insight, what particular domain is constraining them from being able to demonstrate that actual uh, need on, their, on the court. And now within this model as well, so we have at the top, like you said, the needs analysis, then we have the, the actual constraints on the left. So these are going to be the things that a constraint would be any kind of variable or factor that precludes or hinders someone from being able to uh, demonstrate a required or desired uh, need 
for their sport. And then we get to the right, we have stress provocators. So these are variables that when they are present, uh, they make it even more challenging for that individual to perform an activity or they add in the subjective complaints of an unpleasant sensation. Uh, so these are things like the time, the duration, uh, perhaps the, uh, the, the, the magnitude as well of external stress or load. So these are maybe the dials on the turntable that we can manipulate and change, turn up or down if someone has a complaint within a task. And then lastly, at the bottom, we have our key performance indicators. So these are going to be the things maybe on the dashboard of, of the car, right? So these key performance indicators allow us to discern whether or not our intervention tactics are actually, uh, if they have utility, if they are improving what we think they are improving. So we can use these as proxies or surrogates to determine whether or not we're getting some of those needs to shore up from what we've established at the start of the off season or for the physical preparation uh, process. Yeah. And so like I said, going back to combining these, I think, I think that's a really good thought process of how you get to that as well. Would you use, would you then use that, um, your, your pyramid um, of, of principles to methods once you identify the needs to then kind of throw that in there to then determine what methods you use to get to those needs that you've identified in your reconditioning framework. Is that kind of how you use the two together? A hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, it could be somebody that, that maybe they have uh, patellotendinopathy, uh, signs and symptoms that are consistent with patellotendinopathy. One of their subjective um, complaints are when they play, they have a, a challenging time with changing direction, whether that is in a lateral direction, meaning they're doing agility, trying to uh, defend, or if they're trying to do a, a jump where they're going up for a rebound. Well, we know that we need to improve their deceleration uh, tolerance, meaning the ability for them to attenuate uh, their attenuate ground reaction forces and reverse their uh, their body weight upon acceptance. So, the first thing would be well, if we look over, and again, this is going from reverse engineering. So now we know what the needs are for their particular training because they've, they've told us this. Well, maybe we have some particular data that shows uh, they were lacking defensively as well, metrics that, that potentially could be used. Uh, and obviously this is sport specific. Well, if we, we could determine the constraints, meaning what are the things that are, that are precluding them from doing that and or that are uh, cultivating this undesirable patellar tendinopathy symptomology, well, if we use our reverse engineer, we could say, all right, well, let's look at perhaps more of an emergent task and get a little bit more isolated. We could maybe look at uh, force plate jumping and see if they have asymmetry from one side to another. If it shows an asymmetry, well, why do we think that asymmetry is there? Let's keep going down this reverse engineering uh, process to determine the rate limiter of that. We can look at the constituents that serve the ability for them to perform a counter movement jump. Perhaps we look at ankle dorsiflexion. Perhaps we look at uh, perhaps we look at the maximum muscle, muscle strength of the quadriceps. And if we see that maybe oh wow they have a significant uh, asymmetry and a, a decrease in their ankle dorsiflexion and or their hip internal rotation comparative to the uh, the side in which they don't have symptoms on maybe that is a factor or a variable that is influencing 
the way in which they navigate uh, this particular task, meaning jumping or attenuating ground reaction forces. So, all right, well, that's good. Now we can start to rectify that, but we probably should also understand the, again, those variables that might increase or, or influence negatively the symptoms. So if we know that's change direction, we know it's more around the patella tendon rate or speed or velocity is probably going to be something that is a, a catalyst for the onset of symptoms. And we can also subjectively inquire about that. Yeah, like when, it, when I do things with speed, it's typically sensitive. And when I get below 90 degrees of knee flexion, um, that typically seems to be sensitive as well. Okay, so now when we're doing some kind of uh, exposure to training to improve the quad, uh, on top of obviously improving the, the ankle range of motion, we can start to understand how maybe not to overwhelm this tissue and overly sensitize them and using this principle of graded exposure by slowly increasing the depth of the of the um, the movement or slowly increasing the velocity and the rate of uh, force and then we say well, what is our kpi what what for us indicates whether or not uh, we are improving maybe it is something like a, a force plate where we're seeing a an eccentric deceleration asymmetry start to slowly close up or we're seeing some kind of a uh, a single leg, something maybe similar to like a, a Y balance test, right? Uh, uh, specifically looking at the anterior reach, because that is going to, for one, ask them to have and demonstrate a positive shin angle, place more stress and strain on the patellar tendon uh, as well. And so we can look at that pre and post to see if their excursion increased, their depth increased, and their subjective complaints of discomfort have uh, maybe decreased as well. And all these are, like you said, under the guise of the principles at the base of the pyramid. And if we go up the heuristics, well, we're likely going to put them more into this tolerance and capacity category because they have discomfort. They have pain at the patellar tendon. We need to probably dampen that. Uh, and then we also know we need to improve their capacity to demonstrate elastic strength or plyometric activities. Um, and then as we go up to the top, the methods that we choose are going to be contingent on the stress provocators as well. Yeah, okay. No, I think, again, that's using that example, I think really helps tie the two together and understanding of how you identify what the needs are and then apply that back to the, the pyramid of um, uh, your principles and methods pyramid. So I, I think now that we have a general overview of, of kind of how you think of reconditioning and your principles to methods, maybe just diving into a couple more of the specifics that, um, that you've talked about and, and kind of how you reason through those. I think obviously graded exposure is massive in, in rehab and phys physical therapy, um, even in training conditioning, obviously. So <clears throat> I know you mentioned a little bit about um, Dye and, and his work and, and how you've um, constructed your exposure to graded demands. If Maybe you could expand a little bit on that and how, how you've reasoned through it and what um, his model is um, and, and how you've kind of applied that. It'd be, it'd be interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so what Scott Dye's uh, envelope of function discussed, it was essentially looking at the homeostasis of a tissue for him uh, I think his paper was revolving around the knee. Uh, and so his, his concept in general stated that injury 
would happen and typically occurs when people have a tendency to do too much too soon after maybe doing too little for too long. Now, obviously with this, we should understand that injury is, is more complex than, than that. Um, and so he definitely has some, this, this model or this theory in regards to injury causation has a few pitfalls and shortcomings, but I think it does give us uh, some credible inference as to maybe why certain tissues at certain times um, have this capacity exceeding tendency. And so if we can understand and accept this as being a principle, uh, we, could, we could start to understand that, well, for one, great exposure or inoculating stress slowly would provide enough time for said tissue, whether it's injured or not, if we're just trying to adapt or we're trying to, you know, get gains and get some hypertrophy, we should probably employ this principle to make sure that the tissue that we just stressed uh, has a viable enough time in order to uh, replenish itself of the necessary resources to be exposed to the stress in the future. Um, and so with, with Dye's uh, work, the way in which I typically will use this in relation to progressing athletes is going back to the example of, let's say, again, the patella, the patella tendon. You could use this even for the Achilles tendon. Uh, this framework, well, because one question people ask was, like, how, do, how do we know whether or not we're abiding by this principle of great exposure. Meaning how do we know whether or not we've done too much too soon and this tissue or this person is in a state of readiness? Well, uh, one solution, again, more so for patellar tendon, but you can use this for Achilles tendon as well, is to perform a single leg decline squat test uh, where you would have an individual standing uh, with their foot uh, on maybe 20 to 25, you can go up to, to like maybe around 30 uh, centimeters. And so uh, what they would do from there is because we're taking the ankle uh, out of the equation and we're placing more of the focus on the quadriceps. And so once they're standing, we have them go down as far as they can, trying to maintain a relatively vertical torso to, again, kinematically place more kinetics on the quadriceps, and then reach out with the opposing limb as far as they can. And so what I do is I measure, one, the distance that they were able to, to reach or the depth they were able to get down, uh, meaning displacement, but then also subjectively, most importantly, maybe, uh, subjectively, how did you feel with that compared to the previous day? Uh, and so we can use that as a proxy to determine that tissue and the person's perceived state of readiness in regard to the level of discomfort that they have, because we know that tendons tend to have a latent response to loading. So if they come in and their pain is a five out of 10 with a single leg decline squat test, then maybe that gives us some 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 reinforcement that we should maybe continue to load, but perhaps decrease the excursion and or external load that we're applying to that tissue. Otherwise, we nullify the principle of graded exposure or Scott Dye's envelope of function, meaning we're maybe on the verge and teetering with exceeding their envelope of function. So having something in place as a proxy or a surrogate to determine the, uh, the, the readiness uh, for for that individual or their 
performance potential for that day, I think can be extremely efficacious because it allows you to be agile in your programming and periodization. Is that, yeah. is that kind of help a little bit? Yeah, no, definitely. That makes sense. Cause I think like I said, on, on your post, you had the, the different zones of, of like the, um, in within his model of the failure, the, um, homeostasis and, and those and, and that's just kind of pushing in, in a comfortable range to to get some ap- adaptation in a positive way but not too much to where you're overdoing it it's that yeah um, I think another one that I want to kind of maybe touch on too with the fact that uh, you've again reasoned through all these models that you've done and and just one that that um, you posted as well as your pendulum of, of mechanics and kind of how you're how you're choosing um, which movements etc to do and then and, and which way it swings and how you reason through that would be another one um, of, of how then you could apply that to your first two models that that, that we spoke about yeah for sure and this one uh... <laughs> I like this one a lot, but it probably gets me in some trouble sometimes, more so because I think it's just like I opened up with, there's a lot of different uh, tribal allegiances and different uh, frames of thought in regard to especially movement and how movement should look in regards to competency and kinetics and form uh, being this thing that is the end-all be-all and the, the, the number one priority and the number one catalyst for injury. And when we look at the literature, it's just, you know, not, it's just not true because we understand that there is a plethora of ways in which people have their movement emerge. And it also depends on, you know, this whole concept of dynamic systems theory. It depends on their functional and structural personal constraints. Um, but then it also is going to be predicated off of the task at hand, meaning what they have to accomplish and then the environment too. Um, so, not not placing blame specifically on the kinematics, uh, I think, is a way in which I've started to maybe shift my thought process. Um, and that's not to say that these kinematics never matter. So to your point, this concept of the pendulum swinging back and forth. So if we if we can appreciate that things aren't black and white, and if we create these strict categories or boundaries, it might preclude us from providing the most effective strategy or even the, the best narrative to the patient, meaning we, we want to make sure we don't nocebo them uh, into a certain type of uh, frame of thought. So on the left of the, of the pendulum, we would have something like this biomotor, high biomotor expression, which I'll explain in a second. And then all the way on the right of the pendulum, we would have more of these acute uh, pain experiences or uh, specific tissue injury. And then in the middle, we have these low-level activities. So on the fringes, on the outskirts, uh, all the way to the left, all the way to the right, these are going to be maybe the prototypes for where kinematics or movement matters a little bit more meaning on the left, biomotor, high biomotor expression, where we're trying to demonstrate a high amount of force or a high amount of, of, of velocity in a short amount of time, um, then we want to try to leverage our mechanics to be in a more advantageous position to meet the demands of the activity and be more efficient with it as well. So mechanics likely have a, a 
a higher weight associated with them. Now, when we look on the right in regard to pain in certain situations, but certainly in regard to tissue uh, injury, meaning a hamstring strain, for example, we should also be aware that the kinematics matter here because the kinematics that we place someone in could maybe exceed that individual's subjective experience of discomfort or overwhelm that tissue's reparative processes early on um, in the in, in the phases of healing for, again, maybe a hamstring strain. So if we then go back to the middle, well, these are your everyday low-level activities where I'm just going down to get something off the ground, uh, or I'm doing these exercises that are maybe a little bit more safe to fail, where I afford the individual a larger bandwidth to move. Because again, we know, as I alluded to earlier, having a, more, a larger bandwidth is actually beneficial, this movement exploration concept, uh, where now they can start to figure out and, and configure different types of patterns and positions that might be beneficial uh, for them when they're doing the terminal task. Now, if, for example, let's say we get back to the hamstring, uh, someone has a hamstring strain, and we want to make sure we're employing a viable amount of stress to the hamstring complex to make sure that it can handle subsequent bouts of stress and more particularly strain or rate of deformation, then the reason the, the, the kinematics matter not only acutely, but probably a little later is because of the fact that I, I, if I allow them too much of a bandwidth, then that might get in the way or interfere with that tissue acquiring what it needs to get back to high magnitudes and velocities of, of cyclical activity, i.e. running. Um, so that's where, you know, I think the, the pendulum comes into play is just understanding acute manifestations and or these high feats of expressing force, uh, meaning force in different timescales, uh, but it, it, it comes at maybe a higher cost because I'm getting closer to my maximum. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a cool way, like I said, to think about how to choose, I mean, the movements and the, and the, I mean, even your rehab exercises and pairing that with your graded exposure and then going back. And I think, I think this episode put together, <clears throat> like I said, how you look through choosing rehab choosing what you need to work on and then applying your great exposure as well as choosing the movements and identifying how um, people need um, or how, how you reason through everything, I guess. So I think, yeah, I think it makes really good sense to me and, and, and how you reason through it. It's, it's uh, like I said, a lot of people know how to get from, or you can reason A to B in general, but seeing how you go through it might help people choose in different ways or understand that. So I think, I think that made sense. Um, Thank you very much oh, for taking time. That. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be on. If if you want to if you share, I know you share information on, on Instagram as well as a couple other platforms. Um, if you want to shout those out, I'll put those in the show notes for you and um, uh, people can reach out or, or follow you and, and learn from you on those. That'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Instagram is uh, Dr. J. Fit Boyd. I'll, I, I post periodically. I could probably be better i go through waves more so in regard to how the season's going and how busy i am 
as well as uh, R2P Academy, where I am a lecturer with R2P Academy. Uh, and really our goal for continuing education purposes is to bring in a lot of movement professionals, whether it's chiropractors, uh, athletic trainers, physical therapists, strength coaches, and disseminate exactly kind of what I just presented here in regard to the, the principles, heuristics, and then maybe some specific uh, case studies that demonstrate the models that have more credibility with them uh, in alignment with those principles and, and heuristics. So it's it's giving you uh, a framework or maybe inciting uh, more of this mindset of how do I create an agile periodization process so I can be a little bit more adept at going into different lanes or veering off if I need to in case I hit a roadblock. Yeah, no, perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you'd enjoy the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning content and injury rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on my website, www.patrick-wood.com. All this information can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening.